This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. I grew up with Camelot playing in my house, and I can remember walking around as a young kid hearing Robert Goulet, you know, talking about the fact that the rain will never fall till after midnight. By eight, the evening fog must disappear. In short, there's simply not a more congenial spot than happily ever aftering than here in Camelot. I've always wanted to do that in front of a crowd. When I was a kid, I thought about that. It has nothing to do with the message. I just wanted to sing the song. No, actually, that beginning of Camelot finally in time brought those three very powerful personalities together where they were triangled so tightly that in time, Lady Guinevere finds herself torn between these two men with loyalty and truth on the one hand, tearing her apart between passion and desire on the other hand. And what started out as happily ever aftering soon became a desperate and intolerable situation for all of them to the place that in the end, truth triumphed, but only in tragedy. Now I say that because this morning in our series, BC Stories for 80 People, we have a Camelot kind of story before us here in 1 Samuel 25. It too is a very powerful story that's wrapped around three central figures. You have the virtuous King David, the Lady Abigail, and the very self-confident Nabal. And it too in time leaves this woman who finds herself trapped in the middle of these two men, torn between truth and loyalty, desire. And in the end, truth triumphs, but only in tragedy. So let me ask you to turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 25. And let's look at this, what I think is a very powerful story with a number of very central truths that... um, we can learn from here today because all the truths in this story are applicable to 1997. I want you to notice as we begin in verse 1. It sets the story up when it says, Then Samuel died, and all Israel gathered together and mourned for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. I want you to notice, first of all, that there are two events here that are intimately connected. It says Samuel died and David ran. Do you see that? Samuel died and David ran. Samuel was the spiritual leader of Israel. He was the first of the great office of prophets. Now there had been prophets before him, but he was the office of prophet who had audience with the king and held the king accountable. And he was both David's mentor as well as a buffer between David and King Saul, who at this time was seeking David's life because he knew David had been appointed by Samuel as the future king over Israel. Of course, you know the story of conflict between these two men. And Samuel during this time served as a buffer. He was in a sense, as long as he was alive, the last hope that David had 
to be reconciled in some peaceful way with King Saul. But when Samuel died, the hope of that reconciliation perished with him. And David found himself as a leader oftentimes finds himself as truly alone. His mentor gone, his pursuer unleashed, and so what he did is he ran south deep into the mountains of the desert of the Sinai called the wilderness of Paran. And it's there that he encounters a couple whose lives will be intimately entwined with his called Abigail and Nabal. Look at verse 2. It says, Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. Don't forget that. He was very rich. And he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And then you jump to verse 4, that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. But then you have verse 3 that tells us a little bit about this couple. It says, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance. But the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Well, there are a number of things that we can learn just in those short phrases. Nabal was rich. Nabal was harsh. The Hebrew word means hard, unbending unyielding, unteachable. He was a Calebite. And though Caleb himself, years before, had been a great godly and courageous man, the fact is that a Calebite was not of the house of Israel, and the word Caleb meant dog. And I think it's inserted here just to give us a little different slant on the character of Nabal. Unyielding, unbending, unteachable, a dog. Then there was Abigail. Notice it says that she was intelligent, meaning she was a woman of great understanding and good discernment. And not only did she have brains, but she had beauty to go along with that. Abigail's name, by the way, means the joy of my father. Can't you just see a dad's heart bursting in pride as he looks at his daughter with this great understanding this great intelligence, this great discernment, and on top of that, she's beautiful to boot. She was the joy of her father. And how she ever got connected to Nabal will forever be a mystery. The text does not tell us. Maybe it was like the custom of the Middle East. It was an arranged marriage. But however it happened, Nabal got the joy of her father, and Abigail got grief. You know, I laughed when I read what Irma Bombeck said her husband got when she got married. Here's what she said. I don't know if it was the stress of being married or if it were my warranties were expiring. <laughs> Whatever it was during the first years of wedded bliss, we discovered that I was put together like a cheap Japanese watch. First, it was my tonsils. You mean you still have them, my husband asked. What do you think I do, grow them? Of course I still have them and they have to come out. He then said, you're going to be the oldest person in the pediatric ward. <laughs> a month or so later, I came down with the mumps. Bill wasn't as compassionate as he was puzzled. Why would you wait until you were married to have the mumps, he said. <laughs> I thought it would make the time go faster, I said icily. <laughs> By the time I got the word from my dentist that my teeth had to be straightened, his patience was running out. People like you should come with a warranty, he said. 
you need more repairs than our 68 Plymouth. A few months later, when I landed in the hospital with a kidney infection, I overheard Bill telling my father, I have to take my hat off to you. You sure knew when to unload her. <laughs> I can't help but wonder, though, what Abigail's dad thought years later when he realized that the man that he had unloaded his daughter off to, the one with the beauty and the brains, and who was his joy, was a dog. The lowest form in his actions of authentic manhood. He was anything but a real man. He was low on the scale of manhood. But she had him, and that was the case. And now, we come to this place where, in this odd turn of events, King David and the Lady Abigail and the self-confident Nabal have this moment in time where their lives are merged together. That's what we want to look at starting in verse 4. Notice it says that David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. And so David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and visit Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall say, Have a long life. Peace be to you, and peace to your house, and peace be to all that you have. And now I have heard that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we have not insulted them, nor have they missed anything all the days that they were in Carmel. In other words, David's men were all around these shepherds. But rather than take advantage of them, rather than take what they wanted by sheer force, in fact, what they did is protect them. He says, ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son David. And when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name, and then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origins I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back and they came and told them according to all these words. And David said to his men, Each of you, gird on his sword. So each man girded on his sword and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up behind David while 200 stayed with the baggage. Well, I call this the request that flared into a crisis. You see, sheep shearing time in Israel was a lot like harvest time in America. It was a time when all your labor came to fruition. It was a time of plenty. It was a time of profit. And around the harvest was all kinds of festivals and celebrations around the goodness that they had received in abundance as they sheared these sheep and celebrated. But also, just like at our Thanksgiving time, when we come to terms with all that we have and the abundance and plenty that we enjoy, it's also a time that is just a natural time for kindness and generosity and the sharing of that plenty. And so therefore, 
David's request that Nabal share some of the excess that he had with his men was not an unusual request at all. In fact, it makes it even more common knowing how prosperous and rich Nabal was, as well as knowing the fact that David was a very famous person. He was not mysterious to anybody, even in the wilderness of Paran. David's fame had gone before him as a warrior and a poet, and as the heir, according to Samuel, to the throne of Israel. Not to mention that David had a force, an army with him, and he could have taken what he wanted if he had wanted to do so. And you would think in all of that, that Nabal wanting to be generous and to honor this man would be something that would have been just an obvious thing for him to have done. But as these young men listen and wait for Nabal's response, Nabal's response is anything but common. Nabal not only says no to David's request, if you'll look at those verses again, in fact, 10 through 11, he insults David at the highest level. He mocks his name. Who is David? And who is the son of Jesse? He mocks and tramples on his legitimacy. Not the next king of Israel, as everyone knew throughout the land, but in this case, just another rebellious servant, slave, who had broken away from his master. And then to add insult to injury, he rubs salt into a past wound in David's life. It's veiled, but it's there. It's in the last line of verse 11 where he says to him, whose origin I do not know. I don't know if you know why David was always set aside from his brothers, why he was the last to be called in when Samuel looked to appoint a king in Israel. But the hints throughout the Scripture is that, that David was an illegitimate son. He was a man born out of wedlock to Jesse, maybe through an affair, a weekend stand. And so he was always, in a sense, set outside the camp. In fact, when you get to Psalm 51, I think David even acknowledges his roots when he said, in sin did my mother conceive me. But his fame should have been celebrated from those original roots. But instead, this Nabal, this self-confident one, rubs salt into the wound when he reminds him of his origin. Well, as you might imagine, David's reaction to this rejection is immediate and swift. Nukem! That's really basically what he's saying here in these next few verses. Nukem, let's get them. Arise, 400 men, take your sword and let's go. And we're going to wipe not only Nabal out, we're going to wipe everyone in his household out. Do you remember the uh, story in Greek mythology of Achilles? Achilles was one of the heroes there who was taken to the river by the great gods and dipped in the river by his heel so his body could be coated in magical protection from the river except for his heel, which was left out as they dipped him into these waters. It was his one point of vulnerability that ultimately led to his downfall. I want you to know that every person and every leader has an Achilles heel. We're celebrating the 25th anniversary of Watergate, and we remember a president who had an Achilles heel, an acute sense of insecurity that in the midst of total popularity, 
was driven to criminal activity because of that one point of vulnerability. David's Achilles heel throughout his life was his unbridled passion that when it got worked up would overreact and do damage not only to his cause but to himself. And we see this point of vulnerability being exploited here as he tells every man to gird his sword and let's go slaughter the one who insulted me. It was also later the point of vulnerability that caused him to over-respond to a woman named Bathsheba and shame his kingdom forever. It's a good point to start, stop here and just ask, do you know what your Achilles heel is? It's something that comes up over and over again. And from time to time, people want to tell you about it and mention it to you because it's that point, that small point that can eradicate all the good everything else about you is doing. And until a person comes to understand that and accept that, not in shame, but just in reality, and deal with that and compensate for that and put on the armor of God around that, that person is going to be forever in jeopardy no matter how much good they do. And the point of jeopardy for David was his unbridled passion that caused him in a moment of overreaction to launch these 400 ICBMs at Nabal's kingdom. Well, let's look at what happened. Look at verse 14. But one of these young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Behold, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he scorned them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we were not insulted, nor did we miss anything as long as we went about with them while we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day, all the time we were with them, tending the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against all our household. And then this statement, and he, that is Nabal, is such a worthless man that no one can speak to him. If you have an outline, I'd just like you to write down in capital letters under Nabal at this point, these words, because there are words that should ring in our ears. No one can speak to him. No one. And there are people like that where no one can speak to them. You know what Nabal's name means in Hebrew? It means fool. And at the heart of a fool is the inability to hear. And nothing makes a man or a woman in this room a Nabal quicker than going spiritually and socially deaf to the ones that are around you where you can't hear them anymore. You see, the fool is too busy blaming and criticizing and critiquing and most importantly, scheming than to hear from anybody else. They're their greatest orator. They speak to themselves all day and can hear no one else. You know, this year I've been going through the Proverbs and I have been amazed at how much attention is given to the fool. 
It's kind of shocked me, so much so that I've gone back over it, over it again, and the sheer weight of the discussion, by that sheer weight of the discussion, I've concluded that foolishness is not a rare disease. Why give so much attention to that subject if foolishness is something rare? Fools are very common. And they're very common in society today. In fact, as I look through the Proverbs, I begin to notice some common characteristics. I want to give them to you in your box there on your outline. This is what I call a fool's common characteristics from the book of Proverbs. First of all, it's this. A fool can't hear the truth. They are unteachable. Proverbs 1.7 says it this way. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Another proverb says, and I love this because I've been there so many times, pleading. I've been with groups, pleading. I've been with numbers of people, congregations of people, pleading to one person. And yet the proverb that would be written over their life is that knowledge is too high for a fool. It's too high. They're unteachable in their lifestyle. They can't hear. Secondly, a fool takes his or her sin lightly. They are reckless. Caught in a sin, a fool will play down their sin and magnify everybody else's. The Proverbs says it this way, Proverbs 14.9, fools mock at sin. Thirdly, a fool talks nonsense. Proverbs 15.2 says, the mouths of fools spout folly. They talk, 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 but they never get to the real issue. Fourth, a fool is impervious to discipline or confrontation. Proverbs 27, 22 says this, though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle. Can you see it? Grinding up like a druggist. Though you pound a fool in a mortar with a pestle, yet his folly will not depart from him. Fifth, a fool will use his wealth if he has it to prolong his foolishness. There's nothing worse than a fool with money. Because a fool will use his money to prolong his foolishness and to try to buy his way out of it. That's why in Proverbs 10.15 it says, a rich man's wealth is his fortress. It's where he can run into so he doesn't have to listen to anybody else. He doesn't have to be accountable to anybody else. He can always think he can buy his way out of it. He thinks his fortress is impenetrable. But it's not. It's only a matter of time till the walls will fall down. He only prolongs his foolishness with his wealth. And then finally, a fool is often his own undoing. Proverbs 19.3 says, a fool subverts his very own way. Now I want you to know, as bad as that is, there's one thing worse. And that's to be married to a fool. And that's where Abigail comes in. Because a fool not only undoes his own life and destroys his own self, he also brings into his black hole his family, his children, his wife, and his friends. And Abigail finds herself here in this moment dangling over the pit that Nabal had dug for himself. 
But I want you to notice what she did. Look at verse 18. It says, Then Abigail hurried and took 200 loaves of bread and two jugs of wine and five sheep already prepared and five measures of roasted grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and loaded them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I am coming after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And it came about as she was riding on her donkey and coming down by the hidden part of the mountain that behold, David and his men were coming down towards her so she met them. Now look at verse 23. And when Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. And she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservants speak to you. I catch the next line. And listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my Lord pay attention to this worthless man Nabal, for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with them, but I am your maidservant. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. You know, over the years I have found it interesting that a number of commentators have denounced Abigail here. They have said in this moment by her actions that she was disobedient to her husband. That she was disloyal to him. Not telling him of her actions. That she was, and this is the key word, that she was unsubmissive. I want to recommend another point of view here. And especially to you ladies. I want to recommend to you that she is the brightest example that I have ever found in all of Scripture of both what submission means in marriage and also of what the limits of submission are in a marriage. Give her credit at this point. It took a submissive heart to God to stay in a marriage like this one. We know nothing about her straining at the bit to get out of this marriage. In fact, she's well within it trying to protect her household, even trying to protect her foolish husband. I can imagine what it was like over the years, this one of great discernment and great understanding. It's like the old phrase a friend told me one time that's so true. There's only one thing that, that goes as a curse about being mature, and that is you have to live with immature people. And that's what she had to do. And yet she stuck it out. She didn't become embittered. She didn't have an affair on the side. She didn't seek an alliance that would separate her from her husband, she was submissive in what is probably termed a very tormenting relationship. So give her credit for that. It also took a submissive and courageous heart to truth when after this event, she comes before her husband and tells her husband everything that she did. She was not one to hide things from her husband. She was in an immediate place of danger and she immediately responded but after she responded as the story goes on you look at verse 37 she came in and she told her husband everything that she did that took an act of submission and courage but having said that Abigail also models the limits of submission and unfortunately that is rarely discussed from pulpits so I want to mention it to you today biblical submission never asks Never 
you can underline it, never ask a wife to passively comply with an obvious wrong. A clearly stated biblical wrong. Biblical submission never asks a wife to turn her back on abuse or addiction or criminal activity or immorality or a life-threatening situation as if it's just going to be okay. This is not, I repeat, not submission. In fact, a woman who finds herself turning her back or passively complying with any of the things that I've just mentioned is in fact a co-conspirator to all that takes place in her home. An enabler. A codependent personality who is just as guilty of what takes place as the husband who's actively pursuing those activities. Submission is not enablement in the harmful way. It's empowerment to godly leadership in the home. And I think that Abigail, more than any woman in all the Scripture, walks that fine line and models it in a desperate marriage. And she does so admirably so. So here is this woman of beauty and brains who models these much-needed limits of submission, and she does what any submissive wife will do in a desperate, immoral situation. Here's what she does. In a desperate, immoral situation, a submissive wife goes public for help. And that's what she did. Notice her appeal to David. This incense David who's about to draw his sword. I want you to read it starting in verse 28. Here's what she says. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant. Now she's saying that because of her submissive heart. This is a leader of Israel. This is the future king. And so she comes not wanting to lecture him so she doesn't want to transgress in that way. That's what she means by transgression. She's not taking on Nabal's foolishness. She's just saying, I don't want to transgress into your leadership. So please forgive me if I speak out of line. For the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you all your days should anyone rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, then the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And it shall come about when the Lord shall do for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and shall appoint you ruler over Israel that this, meaning what he's about to do in his passion, that this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged Himself. When the Lord shall deal well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. What does she do for David? Well, what she does is she reminds him about the truth of the situation without lecturing him. She gently reminds them that he's God's chosen. You are the Lord's. She reminds him that nothing can stop him from being king. Even in this desperate hour with Samuel gone and Saul pursuing him, God is with him and you will be king and nothing will stop that. And then finally she says, in a very gentle and diplomatic way, David, 
to act in this way in unbridled passion will leave an unnecessary stain on your conscience and on your kingdom once it comes to full bloom. And guess what? David listened. He heard her words. He heard her diplomacy. He recognized a godly spirit was in his midst. Look at verse 35. It says, So David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up to your house in peace. See, I have listened to you, and I grant your request. I hope you don't miss what really, in this chapter, I believe, is the most important principle that is shouted from this text as you move from person to person and event to event throughout this story. And the principle is this. The difference between kings who reign in life and fools who fall in life is that the former is willing to listen to good and godly counsel. The latter has no ears to hear. Remember what Jesus said all the time? He preached the truth. He scattered it like seed all over Israel. And then He would walk away with these words, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And there were those that heard and there were those who didn't hear. And the difference is kings who reign and fools who fall. The difference is those who hear good and godly counsel. You know, I've discovered now that I'm 47 years old that in some ways, some very real and practical ways, life is not that hard. It's not that hard. It's just that we make it hard. We make it a burden because we're unwilling to hear the truth. And that's what this chapter is all about. Well, I want you to notice what happened to Nabal here. Look at verse 36. It says, Then Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast. You know, it's festival time with the shearing. Like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she did not tell him anything at all until the morning light. But it came about in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal that his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him so that he became as a stone. And about ten days later it happened that the Lord struck Nabal and he died. There are two notable stages in this final hour of Nabal's life that I want you to notice very clearly. The first is this, and it occurred when Abigail told him what she had done. It says that his heart died within him. Now there are some who will say, well, what he did is he heard that David was going to come kill him and she stepped in and when he heard about that, he was so scared that he had a heart attack. I read that over and over, and I see no evidence at all for that conclusion. Remember, this is Sir Lancelot. This is Mr. Arrogant. This is the guy that last night was throwing a party as a king. You think he's going to be afraid even in this hour? I don't think so. So what does it mean that his heart died within him in this moment and became as a stone? Personally, I think that this speaks of the final hardening of Nabal's heart to any kind of reasoning at all. 
It's the kind of thing that you saw when Moses confronted Pharaoh over and over again with the plagues. And after each plague, it said that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then there came this final moment, even after he had lost his firstborn son, when the truth was so obvious that God was against him, that that little bit of heart that was left that could be appealed to by conscience, by the Spirit of God, closed off. Gone. And I think when Abigail shared what she had done, this final moment where Nabal could have somehow come to his senses, his heart died within him and it became so hard that he was irretrievable. You know, there's a proverb that backs that up. Here's what the proverb says. It says, fools die for lack of heart. They die for lack of heart. In this moment, Nabal completely closed off his heart to his wife, which would have made her existence even more terrible, and to his conscience. And he became in this moment the consummate, ultimate fool with a heart as hard as stone and so God looked at this man and his usefulness and his retrievability and he said, he's irretrievable and he's useless. And after 10 days of deliberating, he struck him down and he died. Now I want you to know I would be remiss here this morning if I did not tell you that I have witnessed similar events in my 27 years of ministry. This is not fairy tale kind of stuff. This is real life stuff that happens to AD people in this world where men and women will be appealed to for a long period of time and their hearts will become more and more narrow and more and more hard till they reach the place of irretrievability. And though it doesn't always end in death, I will tell you, I have seen some die, literally. I have seen that. And so this is an awesome text that's before us. So David listened and got an unstained kingdom. Nabal didn't listen, hardened his heart and died. And Abigail was freed from a tormenting marriage. Those were the final results of this story. Now, what are the lessons for us as AD people that we can take from this BC story? Let me offer four very quickly as we close. First of all, an obvious truth, and that is this. The only person a fool hears is himself. And if I can be politically correct, ladies, are herself. That's the only person a fool hears. Secondly, some of God's strongest messages come from human messengers of the good and godly kind. I, I want to say in this story, thank God for Abigail who had the opportunity to speak into David's Achilles heel. And I want to say for this church, thank God for a church like this with people who are here, who, who many are invested with good and godly counsel. Thank God for a church filled with those kind of people who can speak corporately or individually into my vulnerabilities and your vulnerabilities. Thank God for a church like that. Thirdly, the ability to hear is often the dif difference between blessing 
and curse. The ability to hear. Just ask those aboard the Titanic about the ability to hear. Ask the Apostle Peter when he found himself, and I love this story, on the Mount of Transfiguration. There he was. Jesus Christ appears in His glorified body. It's awesome. Everybody bows to the ground with the, the celestial light and Moses and Elijah appears. It's this incredible moment where any reasonable person would keep his mouth shut. <laughs> Except Peter. And in this magnificent glory, the Scripture says, Peter begins to speak not understanding what he was saying. Isn't that interesting, that little phrase? Not even understanding what he's saying. What does he say? Let's build some tents and some tabernacles and stay up here and just, let's just stay here. And then a cloud comes and a voice speaks out of the cloud and it says this to Peter. This is my beloved son. Listen to him! That's what it says. And you know what? Those are great words for us. When we find ourselves in trouble and uh, travail, we don't need to talk. When our situation is desperate, we don't need to blame and criticize everybody out there. You know what we need to do? Listen. And especially to Him. That's who we need to listen to. And then lastly, just a question before, you, before we finish here this morning. So who has the opportunity to speak into your life. But here's a better question. If I went to those people and asked them, you say, oh, i got such and such, such and such. That, that, I, they speak into my life. But if I went to them and I asked them this question, is he listening to you? Would they say yes or no? That's the real question. Do those outside see you as listening to them on the inside of your heart. Here's the principle. Fools talk. Kings listen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wisdom of Your Word here this morning. It is such a protection for us. What a relevant, relevant story this is for us in our lives who constantly are needing perspective, not just from anyone, but from those special someones who can speak to our Achilles heel. Lord, I pray that for some here this morning, what this message might do is soften their heart where they're willing to turn to those who've been trying to speak to them. And for the first time, they might say, I'm ready to hear. I pray that you would do that to protect their lives as well as bring glory to yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.